You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, employees at a local veterinary hospital are among the first in the nation to unionize. This creates a momentum that, you know, carries on to other hospitals. And a family sues to get their son with disabilities back in school with a mask exemption. What did you miss most about school? Oh, I just missed my friends and my teacher. All that from your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by Rock Vox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity. Produced in a full-service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at rocvox.com. Employees of a local animal hospital made history recently when they became among the first veterinary workers in the U.S. to join a union. They're fighting for better pay and improved working conditions. My colleague Beth Adams has been following this story and was there on January 14th when the ballots were counted. She has this report. About a dozen employees of Veterinary Specialists and Emergency Services in Brighton, or VSES for short, met in a hotel conference room on January 14th. They were watching remotely as a National Labor Relations Board employee went through their ballots, one by one. 93 workers at the hospital voted. The vet technicians, assistants, and administrators who gathered at the watch party represented just a small slice of that group. These were all pro-union people. The mood in the room was light. Someone brought her dog. It kind of felt like a celebration even before the results came in. As the NLRB workers stacked the ballots into two piles, one with the yes votes, the other with the no votes, they joked about not knowing which pile was which. I mean, come on. I think we can figure it out. Come on. But they were pretty confident this would go their way. And it did. The final count was 65 to 28. The VSES workers made history. They're now among just a handful of veterinary professionals in the U.S. to join a union. Hopefully this creates a momentum that you know, carries on to other hospitals. That's Tara McGrain. She and other pro-union workers say by organizing, they hope to improve their pay and working conditions to prevent burnout, which is often cited as a factor contributing to staffing shortages in veterinary medicine. Getting people to want to work with us when they know they have a voice and some stability in the job, and happier people are less stressed and better able to just care for the patients. VSES is the only 24-hour veterinary practice in the Rochester area where people can bring their pets for emergency treatment. But since January 17th, the hospital has been closed during the overnight hours due to a lack of staff. Staffing shortages have plagued the entire veterinary industry since before COVID-19, but numerous factors related to the pandemic have only magnified the problem. Amanda Slish is an emergency patient care coordinator at VSES. She's worked there almost 17 years. 
I love this job. I can't really imagine doing, you know, something else in my life. It's, it's what I've always wanted to do. That's why I stuck with it so long. But Slish and a number of her co-workers say they just want to earn a living wage. One where we could all afford our rent um, or mortgages and groceries and gas um, without living paycheck to paycheck. And I know right now everybody that works in that building is living paycheck to paycheck. She says she and many of her colleagues have to work a second job just to make ends meet. That's one of the main reasons they started exploring the idea of joining a labor union. They started organizing with the help of Liz Houston. She's president of the National Veterinary Professionals Union. I hear from veterinary workers multiple times a week who are interested in learning about organizing. Since it was formed in 2017, NVPU has supported the union efforts at five veterinary hospitals on the West Coast. But only one group of workers was able to ratify a contract with their employer. Houston says there's been a wave of corporatization across the industry, and veterinary workers feel they've lost their voice. She says the pandemic fueled the sales of veterinary practices. Most are still privately owned, but a growing number are being sold to large corporations. She believes this is being driven by an influx of venture capital and investment firms into the market. They see a huge opportunity in terms of revenue and profit in this market because they are capitalizing on a very low-paid workforce who is mission-driven, who will accept lower pay, lower benefits, you know, worse care for themselves in order to provide care for their patients. Earlier this year, Monroe Veterinary Associates, which has 15 practices in the Rochester area, including veterinary specialists and emergency services, was acquired by Pathway Vet Alliance. The Texas company has over 400 veterinary clinics nationwide. The company recently rebranded itself as Thrive Pet Healthcare. A spokesperson for Thrive says the company firmly believes its teams are better served without union representation, but respects the election process. It remains to be seen, though, whether the company will negotiate with the VSES workers in good faith. Ultrasound technician Sam Estes, who helped organize the union effort, is hopeful. Well, we're going to band together and, and actually be able to have the conversations with the pathway that we were hoping for. And hopefully they'll, they'll be good negotiating partners in, in through that process with us. VSES workers will be represented by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Now, that doesn't sound like an obvious fit for veterinary professionals, but IAMAW Organizing Director Vinnie Adio says that's not a barrier. We have opportunities especially to bring in uh, different types of members into our union. It's exciting for our organization as a whole. Union members from around the country sent their congratulations and messages of support and solidarity to the VSES workers on social media. The next step is getting to the bargaining table. Ron Warner, a business representative of IAMAW District 65, will be guiding the new union members through this process. He says each employee will get a survey. It's real easy to hear from employees that are A personalities, but everybody's involved and and we we want to hear from everyone so we'll put out a paper survey where the individual doesn't put their name on it but they can answer a series of questions of things that are important to them what they want to see out of this contract and from there the union will serve the company with a letter officially requesting that the talks begin beth adams is the host of morning edition on wxxi
Hi, this is Evan Dawson from WXXI. And if you're enjoying Earshot, then you'll want to subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. That's me. On the podcast, you can catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson, where you subscribe to Earshot from WXXI News. Until recently, Buffalo Public Schools had no exemptions to their school mask mandates. But earlier this week, the district quietly agreed to reach out to families that have requested reasonable alternatives to masking for kids with disabilities. It's a win for one Buffalo family that filed a lawsuit leading to the decision. But the family says it's been a long road, and suing the district was a last resort. Emily Watkins is a reporter for WBFO in Buffalo. She spoke with the family and their 10-year-old son about the journey. A quick note, for this story, we use the child's initials at the request of their attorney, since he's a minor. What, what the heck do you get to do? Go to school. You now you're happy? Mm-hmm. What did you miss most about school? Oh, uh, I just miss my friends and my teacher. 10-year-old J.S. has been out of school longer than most of his classmates, 22 months. But unlike many kids his age, it's taken a huge effort from his parents to get him back to class. An effort last week that ended in a last resort. His parents filing a federal lawsuit against Buffalo Public Schools, arguing the district has violated the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 rights of J.S., who has several disabilities. Johnny lights up a room. He, he, Johnny... In the, in the middle of all this, Johnny came to us and said, what did I do wrong? I'll, I'll be good. I just want to go to school. And we're like, you didn't do anything wrong. You, you, we'll get you in school somehow. Every time I tell people that, I cry. That's his father, Edward Ed Spidell. Ed and his partner, Amy Safransky, are no strangers to requesting accommodations for their four kids. All of their children have had accommodations for medical conditions and disabilities. And J.S.'s older brother also attended the same autism program J.S. is in. So, during the pandemic, they submitted a reasonable accommodation request from J.S.'s doctor, saying it is imperative that he wear a face shield rather than a mask due to his PICA diagnosis. PICA is a condition that is believed to be more common in kids with autism and causes kids to crave and try and eat non-food items. This includes J.S.'s mask. And as his parents explain, the mask also makes it difficult to know if he put something else in his mouth that he could choke on or get sick from. His parents say that his pre-K having to call poison control several times was when they first started to notice his symptoms of pica. We don't feel it's fair to John, us, the teacher. Like, how could the teacher live with herself if she didn't see him swallow a marble and he chokes and, you know, something horrible happens? It's just not feasible for him to wear it. We, I wear it. Everybody wears it. We're, he just can't. And the Spidells make it clear. They were not asking for JS to be exempted from masking, just to have a reasonable accommodation. They're not against masking or COVID precautions and take precautions in their own lives. They just want JS to be in school in any way possible. We're not asking for anything special. and We're willing to be considerate of all the students. We understand that other parents are scared to death of COVID and they're worried. That, we understand. We're not trying to harm any other family. According to the lawsuit, the district said in January 2021 that students with disabilities who cannot mask could apply for an accommodation to wear a face shield. 
If they aren't able to wear a face shield, they would stay remote. That was in place when the district reopened in person in February 2021. Ed and Amy decided to have JS finish out fourth grade at home, intending for him to start fifth grade in person. The lawsuit says the July 2021 policy also reiterated the face shield accommodation. But then a new policy in August 2021 said no exemptions to masking during in-person learning would be made during red zones. The Spidells then got a letter saying JS would have to stay remote. But Amy says JS being taught by a teacher who is also teaching an in-person class has been difficult so she often has to teach him the lessons herself we started virtually um you know but it just it, it, it's too hard you know it's hard for you know because he can't see he could see what she's teaching but not like the class and he can't really interact with them and so th- we've basically been doing it the other way since then like she gets the work we do it he goes on like lexia he goes on Mayan, he does all his work And then, you know, we submit it to her. JS is also not able to receive the in-person therapy services he would typically get. And the Spidells say this situation has had a financial and career impact for them. Once they went remote, I couldn't, you know, I, I was home. There was, I couldn't, I couldn't go back to the workforce because I had to be a teacher. His eldest sibling, Caitlin, who is a nursing student, says she's also had to step up to help. And I know as a big sister, that's my responsibility. But it's not my responsibility to teach him the things that he should be learning in the school. And it's come to a point where there are times where I have to drop my important responsibilities to help him out because I can catch myself up. He needs the instruction and he needs someone sitting there with him because of his autism. Ed says he has spent months attending every meeting, calling every person, doing everything as a parent and talking with other families. The lawsuit was a last resort and targets the August policy alleging that violates the ADA in 504 because the policy did not allow for in-person reasonable accommodations for students with disabilities. This battle, of course, is battles for John, but this battle is for every kid that's being robbed of their, their rights. They're all being robbed. I can't speak on their behalf. I hope they hear this interview and I hope they run and get help because the district is doing such a disservice to our community. Since the lawsuit was filed, an agreement was reached between the Spidell's lawyer and the district, allowing reasonable accommodations on a case-by-case basis, consistent with the July policy and making the August policy obsolete. Why do we have to force them to do what was legally their obligation? Not even about what's right, it was legally their obligation to, to care for these children, and they abandoned them. This is the tip of the iceberg. It's every day I hear a new story. Rebecca Izzo, the lawyer for the Spidells, says they believe the agreement will impact dozens of students. And she says the district intends to contact those families who also requested accommodations. The district also agreed to let JS return to school on February 7th with a face shield and weekly testing, among other precautions, while the lawsuit plays out in court. The school district has declined to comment on the case as it is still in litigation. Johnny did get emotional. He was very happy that he gets to go back to school. Um, And I think it's a big win. It's a big win for not only Johnny, but for all the other children that are not able to go to school because of the mask. Emily Watkins is a reporter for WBFO in Buffalo. You can see and hear more of their stories at WBFO.org.
And that's it for Earshot. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate us and give us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send your feedback to earshot at wxxi.org. Find even more local news at wxxinews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.